The question today is, uh, who is, who is God? Well, the interesting thing is that some people, some people here perhaps, um, uh, may beg to differ even with the question itself. Um, like it assumes something that you're not actually up for. Like, how do you even know that God exists anyway? How do we even know that there's a supernatural reality? Now, one of the things about working in a high school, which I did for many, many years, is uh, I just had lots of kids come through that just said, prove to me that God exists. Now, give me proof. Now, the difficulty with that question about give me proof of God's existence or prove to me that God exists is there's kind of a subtext to that question, which is like, you give me evidence that makes me have to believe something. That's really what that means most of the time when people say it. And I would ask you this question, is there anything that you can believe where someone can give you evidence when you don't want to believe it to make you believe it? I don't think there is. I think, I think trusting and believing anything, not just truths about God, Believing anything is an actual choice that you need to make. I actually can't and I don't think anyone can provide enough evidence to prove that God exists to make you believe Him when you don't want to do it. Because the believing is a trusting piece that you've actually got to choose to do. It is actually, in some ways, a leap of faith. Which I think believing anything is a leap of faith. Now, the question really is not whether it's a leap of faith, but whether your leap of faith is based on the absence of evidence, based on the evidence, or goes against the evidence. You with me? Everyone has to make that call about whether, when you trust someone or you trust some information, you come, I mean, your husband or your wife might come home or your kids might come home and they tell you a story of something that happened in the day. Now, it's not going to be probably a story that your life is depending upon, but you're actually making a decision about whether what they're saying is true or not and whether you're going to trust it. True? That's, that's what you do about everything. You do that about absolutely everything. So I want to suggest to you this morning that there's actually really good evidence to support making the decision to trust in God and to believe in God. Let me just go back a step before we uh, kick into uh, some of that. Uh, let me ask you this question. What if God doesn't exist? What if he doesn't? So there you go. That's a strange question to ask in church. Like there's, what if there's no supernatural? What logically follows if physical things are the only things that exist? No, lots of things. <laughs> now, some, some people would sit there and they'd kind of go, that's no biggie for me, like, I could live with that. It's no drama. Physical's all, all there is. Well, I would just suggest if you think that, not to be so quick, because if the physical is all that there is, a whole bunch of things get thrown out and life becomes very, very different and difficult. Uh, Check this clip out. This is from uh, Phillips, Philip Adams, who's arguably one of the most well-known Australian atheists. The great problem in discovering that you don't believe in God is you feel an intense and all-pervasive sense of loneliness. And when I found that I didn't need to believe in him, I still felt a great sense of desolation and a high degree of fear. 
I've always understood the religious impulse, the great overwhelming fear of death, of annihilation, which is at the heart of most of it, and the desperate need to find a meaning in a universe which really doesn't have one. If you want to know what happens after, think about what happened before. Infinite, infinite nothingness. We've all been dead. We live briefly, we go back to the same state. Why can't people see it's as simple as that? Now, it begs the question, doesn't it? If everything's meaningless, why are we listening to Philip Adams tell us about how to live life? Do you, do you get my point? Well, there's a problem straight up at that point, but I'm not going there just yet. Hear the existential kind of struggle, the existence struggle for someone who's decided that God doesn't exist. It's a pretty dark world. Is anyone with me on that? Like that, that straight off the bat, that sounds pretty dark to me. Um, and, and you think about the way that he finishes in that video, he goes, we all go back to infinite nothingness. Like he thinks that the only thing that's here is physical. So you go back to infinite nothingness. So nothing actually matters, ultimately. It's pretty uplifting, isn't it? It's like, yeah, yeah, that's why I come to church. Well, it gets better. You go to this guy, Richard Dawkins, he's a pommy uh, atheist uh, fellow who wrote the book, The God Delusion. Listen to what he says about the fact that the world is just physical. In a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, listen to this, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe is precisely the properties we should expect. If there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. Now Dawkins has done well, because when you get rid of God, you get rid of purpose and you get rid of evil and you get rid of good. You just can't have it. But that's a depressing world to live in, is it not? Imagine if there actually isn't anything good or bad or purpose and that the person that gets brutally beaten up and king hit on the side of the road is just the fruit of some genes, DNA and the temperature that it was that night and some, and some chemicals that happened. It's like, man, it's not evil. Like you just lost your son because he got king hit and he got killed. But no, it wasn't evil. It wasn't bad. It was just a random physical thing that kind of happened. It was kind of like that guy was like a dishwasher and he was just kind of doing his thing. He was doing what he was programmed to do. Evil's not bad. It's hormones, genes and chemicals. And self-sacrifice isn't really. It doesn't even really matter. You see, if there's no law maker, there can be no law. There's no evil, there's no good, it just is. So let me ask you this question, how do you feel about that? Does anyone want to live in that world? Well, the answer of the atheist is to say, it doesn't matter whether you like living in it or not, that's just the way the world is and you've just got to suck it up and do it. Bertrand Russell, um, a uh, 20th century British philosopher and atheist, wrote this. This is a little bit more complex, but this is just as depressing, all right? That man is the product of causes which had no provision of the end that they were achieving, that his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collisions or collocations of atoms that no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave, 
that all the labours of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius, listen to this, are destined to extinction in the vast heat death of the solar system, and that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. All these things, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy that rejects them can hope to stand. Some of you are going, I'm glad I came to church today. What's he saying? And I, I'm going to try and uh, help you all with this uh, today, especially the high school students. You're just going, I'm lost already, right? You know really what he's saying here is it doesn't matter how good or bad things go, you just end up in a pile of smoking ash as a universe and it doesn't really matter in the end anyway. Nothing really matters. There's no purpose in life. And this is the reality. If you say that creation is all that there is or the natural world is all there is and it's just physical, you don't get any answers to any of your deep questions because your deep questions don't matter. Nothing matters. It doesn't really matter how you try or what you do. In the end, and some of you might go, yeah, well, it does in the meantime. It's like, yeah, but you end up in this pile of burning ash that is the universe in the end. So ultimately, it doesn't really matter. Dark? Yes. Are they honest? Are, they, are, are these atheists honest about the results of this? Yes, they are. Are they accurate? I think they are. I, I actually don't think on a personal level, I don't think people can live in a world like that. No, hum, no human can actually live in that. Greg Kokel is a uh, fellow, a Christian guy that I've uh, listened to, uh, I listened to a lot, a lot of years ago. And I, I always loved how crisp his argumentation was and how accessible it is and he says this he says atheism explains nothing it is the ultimate non-explanation explaining by denying that explanations exist why is there something rather than nothing no reason what caused everything nothing what accounts for morality there's no morality to account for why is there evil in the world there's no evil in the world since there is no real morality What's wrong with the world? Nothing. It just is. How do we fix the world? We can't fix what's not broken. We can only make it more tolerable to our personal tastes. I organise that. <laughs> All right? And, I'll tell you, and the reason why I organise it is because most of you are sitting there when it first happened and you thought, what actually caused that to happen? And some of you actually turn around. Now, what's important about that is you didn't just react and just go, a sound happened. The reason why you reacted, a lot of you, and why some of you turned around, is you actually wanted to know the cause. What actually made that thing happen? What made that knock happen? Do you get my point? Now, scientists know that the world began to exist. That there was a big bang. Now, just before we had a big knock all right and the big knock was caused by something what was the cause of the big knock does anyone know it was matt martin <laughs> now he was the big knocker <laughs> wasn't he like there's a big knock and he was the one that caused the the big knock now here's the thing it didn't come from nothing did it and that's the way it always works. If something actually happens, it's because something causes it to happen. Now, in our house, I don't know whether my kids have ever noticed it, 
But we, in the corner of our, in our uh, TV room, has anyone ever had this in a house? That every now and then a house just makes a weird noise. And sitting there, we've got this in our TV room, it just makes a weird noise. And the thing is, like, I sit there and I don't sit there and think that this mysterious noise happens that isn't caused by anything and it's really spooky and magic. I just go, I wonder what's happening in the house. Because when things start to exist, when things actually happen out of the blue, something actually caused it to happen, all right? Now, here's the bottom line. It takes way, way, way more faith to believe that the Big Bang came about without any involvement from an intelligent being. Like, that doesn't make any sense at all to me. Like, if you ask someone, the universe began to exist in a particular moment, <laughs> and, and then you go, how did that happen? And they go, well, something happened in the nothing, and it just happened. All right? I think it was Socrates said, nothing is what rocks dream about. <laughs> Something doesn't happen in nothing. If you've got nothing, you've got nothing. Now, you tell me, on one side, the whole of this created universe comes about randomly, out of nothing, with no one causing it, or on this side, that God actually causes the creation of the world and everything comes out of nothing at His hand and He actually does it. Which one would you put a hundred bucks on? Of course you'd put it on this side, right? Of course you would. Why would... Anyway, you get the point. So here's the first point this morning is... Um, I think point us to the existence of God and the supernatural. The first one is the beginning of the universe. And if you want to check into it, there's a guru called William Lane Craig and he's got an argument called the cosmological argument and you can look that up. It's a pretty good argument. It just says whatever begins to exist must have a cause... The universe began to exist. The universe has a cause and the cause is an intelligent being who we would call God. Number two, morality. Is anything evil? Now, here's the thing. Most of you would be aware of the fact that the problem of evil, how can a good God allow evil and suffering has been a thorny one for Christianity over the years. And I want to suggest to you this morning that Christians haven't really maximised the impact of the thorniness of that debate as much as they could. You know why? Because if God doesn't exist, evil doesn't exist. The problem of evil is a question that everyone has to answer. It doesn't matter whether you're an atheist or you're a Hindu or you're a Buddhist or you're a Muslim, you have to answer that question. And the presence of evil and people's personal reactions to the presence of evil in the world is really, really good evidence of the fact that there's an inbuilt objective kind of morality in the world. Now, what's interesting about our culture at the moment is our culture has actually moved away from talking about good and evil or truth and error. They've moved away from talking about it as a personal preference and they've moved much more in, in the direction of calling it an objective thing. Now, the easy way to kind of think about all of this, about whether people, whether objective kind of moral reality exists, whether things are actually good or bad, is to think of some of the extreme examples. Like, what, what do you think about Auschwitz? The concentration camp where they gas people. Do you think that's okay? Or is it just not a personal preference? <laughs> like, personally, I'm not comfortable with thousands of people being gassed in the showers in a concentration camp but there isn't actually anything wrong with doing that. Now, we were solidly in that camp, I think our culture 
a number of years ago, but I don't think that we're there anymore. And I'll give you one example of that. And it was a Courier Mail yesterday, which had Bill Cosby splashed across two pages yesterday. No one is saying anymore that what Bill Cosby did <laughs> was wrong by personal preference. They're saying, I, I, I just personally prefer it if people don't actually do that to women, like drug them and do other stuff to them. Are you with me? Everyone's out there, we live in a culture now, I think, where everyone's out there making public proclamations about objective truths that cut across everything, that overarch everything. And this is part of the machine, I reckon, the judgmentalism machine that we're in at the moment, is we're in this machine where people want to call people out on stuff, right? And here's the big question. When, when our culture calls someone out on things, are they saying something about how they feel about it or are they saying something about the action? I think they're saying something about the action. That's what they're doing. Now, if you're saying something about the action, you're saying that the action itself is morally wrong and you can only call something morally wrong if you believe that there's a transcendent law that sits over the top of that that governs that are you with me and if you think that something's morally wrong and there's a transcendent law there has to be a transcendent law giver over the top who's called god you can't get away from it it's just the reality of it if there's no objective evil you can't argue against God because <laughs> it doesn't exist. You can only argue about evil if God actually exists. He needs to exist for you to argue about it. All right. Now, here's a random one you probably might have heard me talk about before. And I'm not going to spend heaps and heaps of time on this, but... Um, the last two I'm just going to rip through really quickly and I can give you some stuff to read if you'd like to. There is some really, you know, when we're thinking about is the, is the natural world all there is, there's some really kind of, I'd almost say spooky stuff that goes on with near-death experiences. And I'm not talking about the near-death experiences where someone sees a light and they go to, toward it and it feels like the heat is on, you know, and they feel all warm and fuzzy and everything. I'm not talking about those kind of near-death experiences um, and I'm not playing them down, I'm just... I'm just saying that there's a whole bunch of near-death experiences that actually involve, and I hesitate to say this because this is actually a, an occult term as well, and I'm not talking about the occult, they actu it actually involves remote viewing, which basically means that they see something that they shouldn't be able to see. Let me give you an example. There's a documented case uh, by a paediatrician of a, uh, a young girl called Katie uh, who nearly drowned. She didn't register a pulse for 19 minutes. This uh, doctor stood over her body in the intensive care unit. She had massive brain swelling. She was profoundly comatosed. Um, the uh, the paediatrician said, when I first saw her, her pupils were fixed and dilated, meaning that irreversible brain damage had, almost likely, had most likely occurred. Um, she was put on life support and left. And then a couple of days, just out of the blue, she wakes up. And she sees the doctor and she says, where's that other doctor, the doctor that, with the beard? That was helping me out and she hadn't seen him but then they, they both came in and they started asking her questions and what she actually talked about is she said when she was in the emergency room she lifted up ab above her body and she actually watched everything that happened in the emergency room and then she claimed that an angel called 
What's the angel's name? Elizabeth. An angel called Elizabeth took her to her house to see what was going on in her house um, that night. She correctly reported very specific details about people's clothing in the house, where each family member was in the house. Um, she identified a popular rock song that her sister was listening to in the house that night. She observed her father. She watched her mother cook dinner. She knew that her mother was cooking chicken and rice for dinner. And all of this came out while this, while this girl was comatose. Do you get my point? Now, it doesn't prove the existence of God per se, but I think that's actually some pretty good evidence that a supernatural realm exists because she knew a whole bunch of stuff that she shouldn't have known. And there's more stories documented about near-death experiences than that. Let me go with the last one. Here's my last one quickly, is the incredible intelligence in the universe. Um, is anyone here old enough to remember watching the movie Contact with uh, Jodie Foster in it? Back in like 97 or something. And you remember the SETI kind of program, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence? People know when they're listening to noise coming out of space. I mean, this is what you learn from the movie, right? Is that there's a vast difference between random just universe noise and intelligent noise. And that's kind of what the whole movie was about, right? Is it's like Jodie Foster finding this noise and then starting to decode it and work out what it meant and finding out that it had this structure to it. No one kind of doubted that there was intelligence out there because of the nature of the transmission that was actually happening. Now, the, the intelligence that exists in the universe is phenomenal. And Anthony Flew, who's since passed away, um, wrote this. And he was the 20th century, probably one of the most famous um, academic uh, atheists in the world who changed his mind. And he didn't become a Christian, uh, apparently, but he actually uh, changed his mind and moved to being a deist. He said, look, on the weight of the evidence, you just have to say that something intelligent actually created everything. This is what he said. I now believe that the universe was brought into existence by an infinite intelligence. And the poor old atheist, I mean, he was their poster boy all over the place, right? And all of a sudden he changes his mind. I remember reading it in the age, the Melbourne age, when it first happened all those years ago. Uh, I believe that, I think, I can't remember, I think it was in the 2000s, somewhere there. I believe that this universe's intricate laws manifest what scientists have called the mind of God. I believe that life and reproduction originate in a divine source. Why do I believe this, given that I expounded and defended atheism for more than half a century? The short answer is this. This is the world picture, as I see it, that has emerged from modern science. Science spotlights three dimensions of nature that point to God. The first is the fact that nature obeys laws. The second is the dimension of life of intelligently organised and purpose-driven beings which arose from matter. The third is the very existence of nature. Your DNA is tens of thousands of pages of information that determine how you're made. And then there's an estimated 5 billion species on the planet. You can talk about the positioning of our planet in exactly the right place in the solar system. It's the right size, it's got the right tilt, it's got the right magnetic field, it has the right size moon. It's just the right combination of oxygen and nitrogen. You know, even, I think it was Flu that even said this. He said, even if you grant that everything here was created by random processes, and there's an old um, argument that talks about if you find a watch 
in a field, you wouldn't automatically assume that it came about by random courses, but by something intelligent that actually created it. And so I think it was Flu, could be wrong on this from memory, but it, I think it was Flu who said, even if you grant that the watch came about by random forces, the bigger question you have to explain is who made the watch factory? which is the laws of gravity, the laws of physics, to even make that happen because they're so precise as well, even down to nuclear forces. Now here's an interesting quote from Darwin, which you don't hear um, very often from the origin of the species. Uh, he says this, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. Do you know what he's saying? Is if an organism exists that is irreducibly complex, which means you have to have numerous parts come together at the same time and all work together at the same time, if there's an organism like that that exists, his theory breaks down because his theory works upon building things one upon the other. Now, I think there's heaps of things scientifically that are irreducibly complex. And a bunch of scientists have actually been saying that. And I think Darwin's thing just kind of breaks down. So there you go. I've given you a quick Cook's tour. So some of you might be thinking at this point, okay, okay, you got me, all right? <laughs> I thought this was meant to be talking about who is God. And you've just been talking about people who don't believe in God. Well, here's the kicker. Here's the kicker. If we get rid of God, we don't end up with a godless world. If God's not the one who's in charge, you know who ends up in charge? Humanity. We kind of become the gods of this world. And I want to suggest to you this morning that you just need to be a little bit careful about how much people's beliefs can actually, how much people's desires and what they want to do can actually drive their beliefs and the way that they think about things. This is a uh, quote, just a, a very... Uh, piercing quote I think from Aldous Huxley uh, who was an English writer, novelist and philosopher. Listen to what he says, I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning and consequently assumed that it had none and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned with ex exclusively with a problem in pure metaphysics, he's also concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do. For myself, as no doubt for most of my friends, that, listen to this, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. He goes, I believe that the world doesn't have morality because I wanted to do whatever I wanted. That's what he's saying. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. We wanted to do whatever we wanted with sex. So God's not going to let us do that. So let's just believe that God doesn't exist and that there's no meaning. And we can. The supporters of this system claim that it embodied the meaning, the Christian meaning. They insisted of the world. There was one admirably simple method of confuting these people and justifying ourselves in our erotic revolt. We would deny that the world had any meaning whatever. So I'm not saying that all atheists are this conflicted i'm just saying don't be so sure that they're not okay and don't be so sure to think that you always follow what you think is right i think often your thinking follows your desires a friend of mine 
who's not a Christian, gave this book to me a little while ago and we actually met up in a coffee shop and we're talking about it and some lady looking over our shoulder was just wanted to know, what, what's, what's this book all about? She asked about it, he said, you'll have to read it. It's still at my house at the moment. It's uh, called Three Magic Words. Down the bottom there, you won't probably be able to read it, but it says, this is a book about the greatest idea in the world, a splendid secret revealed in just three words. An idea so simple, so startling, so wonderful that it can start you on an exciting adventure that will bring you everything you ever wanted. It's a pretty big claim. What are the three words? When you want to know? The lady sitting next to us in the coffee shop wanted to know. That's pretty good. You know the words are, I am God. Let me read you, this is uh, one of the last chapters in the book, chapter 12. See that, uh, the key is, you are God. Uh, this is the ineffable secret, the ultimate illumination, the key to peace and power. You are God. If you will accept this towering truth, dare to stand atop this magnificent pinnacle, universal consciousness will be revealed to you from within. God is there. It is he who peers from behind your eyes, who is your own consciousness, who is your very self, you are not just a part of God, you are altogether God and God is altogether you. He even quotes Jesus down the bottom there. Erroneously. Look, not much more needs to be said. I said to uh, my mate, I said, you know what, your book says that me believing I'm God is the answer to my problems. My book says me believing I'm God is the source of all my problems. Look, I think without heading down the rabbit hole too far with arguments for the existence of God, I think we can just safely say, I trust that maybe you're with me today, that the evidence points to the existence of God. The God of naturalism doesn't really help us. And there's lots more arguments we could put out for the existence of God. At the end of the day, uh, God is the best explanation for the way that things are in this world. So the obvious next question after that uh, is, uh, okay, so an intelligent being exists, which one? <laughs> Which one? The uh, Huffington Post reported that there's 33 million gods in the Hindu religion. So it's a good question, right? And you probably don't even have enough lifetime to investigate all of the gods, of the proclaimed gods that are out there. Let me show you one. You'll love this one. This is from uh, National Geo. At first glance, this temple in northern India looks like any other. Pilgrims come here to pray to the saint and goddess Karni Mata. But this temple also houses other deities. Rats. They run rampant in the courtyards, spill out of doors, tumble down stairs, scurry around corners. And there's not one, not two, but over 15,000 of them inside. Welcome to the Rat Temple. We consider the rats as a form of the goddess. We worship them. Jatudin is a priest of the Karni Mata Temple in the village of Deshnak near Bekaner. Maybe we can stop there. They worship, they worship rats. All right, uh, I, read, I read somewhere that um, if you go and visit, like tourists go and visit, and it's like you're not allowed to wear shoes, like for obvious reasons, uh, so that you can feel when you're stepping on uh, one, of the one of the gods or one of the ancestors, all right? 
And uh, I, I did read somewhere that um, there is some kind of, I don't know whether this is true or not, but there's some kind of expectation if you actually kill one of the rats, you've got to replace it with a, a golden rat. Um, so here's the thing, it's a, it's a good question, right? Um, how do you know which one? And you, you don't have enough lifetime and the capability to investigate every claim for every deity. But let me simplify it a little bit for you. There's a uh, book called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. Um, and it has this diagram in it, which I think is quite helpful. You can basically split up world religions into three bits. Uh, obviously, you've got atheism at the right hand end there, no God at all. Okay, and it is. I mean, in some places, it is one of the check boxes you can tick under religion. All right, so let's just call it that. Um, the middle one is pantheism, which is God is all. So you've got Zen Buddhism, Hinduism, and New Age. And that Three Magic Words book is just a real kind of weird mix of all of that kind of stuff. And on the left-hand side, you've got theism, where God made all, and you've got Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Now, how are we to understand uh, world religions? Well... Here's one way that people understand world religions. It's a classic Indian parable. The elephant is a metaphor for God and the various blind men represent religions and disagree on something that no one has fully experienced yet. And really what this parable actually talks about is, is this notion that, yeah, all the religions kind of differ, but they're just grabbing onto a different part of the elephant and uh, if they could just see the whole elephant, they'd realise they're all kind of on the same team. The, there's a whole bunch of problems with this illustration, all right? One of the big problems with this illustration is world religions, and we'll get to this in a minute, fundamentally agree on really critical foundational realities, all right? They just do. They just don't agree on all of those really critical basic kind of things. The other reason is a little bit more of a logical reason is because... Like, who's the person who's actually looking at the elephant? The story itself fails the test. It's told from the point of view of someone who's not blind. And yet this person's saying that everyone else is blind. You know, you can't claim that everyone else is blind and they can't see the whole of the elephant unless you can see all of the elephant. But the, the parable itself actually says no one can see all the elephant. You see the problem? It just kind of fails and it kind of breaks down on itself. The argument kind of commits suicide. Where you end up is you end up with the Baha'is. Anyone notice the Baha'i sign on the way back from Brisbane? One God, many messengers. This is from the Baha'i website. Throughout history, God has sent to humanity a series of divine educators known as manifestations of God whose teachings have provided the basis for the advancement of civilization. These manifestations have included Abraham, Krishna, Zoroaster, Moses, Buddha, Jesus and Muhammad. I don't even know how to say that. Next one, the latest of these messengers explain that the religions of the world come from the same source and are in essence successive chapters of one religion from God. What are the Baha'is saying? Everyone's on the same team. They just don't know it, but we know it. <laughs> like the Baha'is know it. It's like we have got clarity about this. You don't. Have clarity about this. Now here's where the Baha'is fall down and everyone who would like to claim that all religions 
are kind of on the same team together, is that truth by nature is exclusive. It just is. One plus one equals two. It can't equal two and four at the same time. You with me? You just can't. You see, it's logically possible that every religion in the world is wrong. It's not logically possible that all of them are right. You with me? It's just not. It just isn't logically possible that they're all right. It's logically possible that they're all wrong. Here's a third option. It's logically possible that one of them's right and the rest are wrong. See, if Jesus is God, then Jews and Muslims fail in a serious way to love God as he really is. If Jews and Muslims are right, then Christians fail to love God in the way that he really is. Each religion claims to have the truth, even the Baha'is. So the Baha'is would disagree with us, even as they would want to embrace us. They say, you're too exclusive. We're more embracing. This is what is correct. I mean, Buddhism doesn't even believe in a personal God at all. Uh, the Jews, the Christians and the Muslims believe in a God who holds all people accountable for their beliefs and practices and whose attributes could not be reduced to love. That's not the case with other religions. So let me just throw out to you now this thought. Um, all religions are not equal. All right? And that's a bit of a cultural kind of truism that people use they just aren't now on the abc news website last night there was this article that documented them finding probably the largest discovery of child sacrifice in the world to a god in northern peru about 140 kids were sacrificed to this god and the archaeologists suggest they were possibly offering the gods the most important thing they had as a society the most important thing is children because they represent the future folks all religions are not equal <laughs> do you understand my point you, you can't just we're, we're all equal we're all in the same hood together you just you can't you can't say that if you do say that, you have to say that sacrificing 140 kids to a God is, is on a similar level to Christians going and loving their neighbour. You just can't do that. Here's the, uh, the kicker. We could spend some time kind of criticising other religions but criticizing something else doesn't actually establish the truthfulness of anything it just establishes something about the thing that you're criticizing so let me just run through a few things to help us to uh to kind of wind this up in this table i think is really helpful if you look at this table this is out of evidence that demands a verdict the latest uh, version of it you can see buddhism hinduism islam judaism and christianity down the left notice their beliefs about god one says no god many gods one god is allah one god is yahweh trinitarian father son and holy spirit which is christian i fundamentally disagree like this is not just the leg of an elephant like this is like this i don't know this is like the the torso or something i don't know like this is like the center of the whole thing 
Uh, beliefs about salvation. Buddhism believes uh, in enlightenment. Uh, Hinduism, reincarnation. Islam, the five pillars. Judaism, the law. And Christians, grace. And notice all of them on the right, if you look at the footnote, think that other religions are wrong. So at the end of the day, pretty much every religion is exclusive. So how do we judge or how can we think about which God is the right one? Now, one of the ways I think you can do that, there's lots of different ways you can do it, but one of the ways that you can do it is you can use the law of non-contradiction, okay? Now, what colour is this? Excellent. I just picked something that's got blue-green colour blindness for people, <laughs> just to test you out. That's blue, right? Everyone happy with that? Unless you've got a problem with your eyes, with colour blindness, so well, unless you've got colour blindness, it's blue, right? Now this cannot be blue and gold at the same time, can it? Unless you do something funny with language, but if there's an agreed kind of definition to what blue is, this is blue and it's not gold. That's kind of the law of non-contradiction, like this can't be blue and gold at the same time in the same way. Does it make sense? And here's the thing, you operate your whole life on the law of non-contradiction. So when you ask one of your kids or you ask your friends, did you do this? They give you a yes or a no answer. It can't be yes and no. You understand what I'm saying? So here's, here's the big idea. This is one of the ways that you can test the truthfulness of something is whether something corresponds with reality. So if you say, if I say to you, this is blue, you look at that and what I'm saying corresponds with the reality and you say, that's true. If I said to you, no, this is actually hot pink, you would probably say, I hope, and we can help you later if you need more help with this, but you would probably say, I hope, that's not true because what you're saying, Peter, doesn't correspond with reality. Is everyone with me on that? So, in wrapping up, what we can do is we can actually look at whether a religion is truthful and right by how it fits reality. You ready? I'm going to fly through this and you might pull a, a brain muscle on the way, but let's go. I think there's a great fit with human dignity with Christianity. So, God created man in his own image and the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. The Bible teaches that humans are valuable because they're made like God and I think people intrinsically know it. They just know that that's the case. I mean, how many times have you heard people all over the place talk about how people are valuable? See, if God doesn't exist and all that exists is a physical, people are not really valuable. They're not more valuable than anything else. Treat people with dignity, people say. It's like, on what basis are you going to do that? Well, I think in, in culture, it's like we kind of know that people are valuable and the Bible actually gives us something that fits really well with that. One of uh, Australia's probably, at, at some level, um, most disappointing exports has been Peter Singer. And Peter Singer is uh, an academic 
he's living in the States, I think, at the moment, and he actually teaches that he thinks that if a child is born with a deformity, that parent should have the right to, to kill that baby after it's born. All right, so he's kind of extending the abortion thing and just saying they should have the right to be able to kill that if they want to kill it. Infanticide. Yet our reaction, it's, it's like some of you might go, yeah, well, we're probably we could find some people that that doesn't bother very much. But the, the sheer kind of tonnage in terms of humanity that would have an issue with that tells you that there's something more going on in people's estimation of what a human is than, um, than just taking out the weakest. All right. The origin of the world. We already talked about this. Now, Romans 1 verse 20, for God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made. The world didn't just come out of nothing with no cause. It, there's, it's an incredibly complex world. Things are getting more and more complex. The further we get away from Darwin's theory, the more complex things get. And I think that's reflective and it fits really neatly with the, uh, the, the immensity of a great... God. What about this one? Uh, John 14, verse 6. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I, I think it's just a really good fit with the world that we actually have, that good and evil actually does exist, that there is a transcendent being over that, that's, that's uh, kind of giving the sense of and, and describing what good and evil is. Some things are just wrong. I mean, if you've been a victim of something... It just doesn't fit when you've been a victim of something to say that wasn't actually evil. Like that doesn't fit. It doesn't fit your experience. It doesn't fit what goes on. To have someone, to have a person, a creator that's over everything that um, brings shape to all of that um, and definition to good and evil just makes so much sense. It's such a good fit. All right. A couple more. I think... Man, I could go for weeks on this one, I reckon. But uh, the explanation of evil in the Bible is just phenomenally accurate and right about the way that people operate. The fact that people are worship and love things unceasingly all of the time, always centering their lives around something, always. Listen to this from Colossians 3 verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Let me reload that from the king james version mortify therefore which kill it uh, your members which are upon the earth fornication uncleanness inordinate affection see i know what inordinate means it's too big it gets too big and here's the thing about uh, christianity christianity is not saying that desire is wrong christianity is saying that desire that gets too big is wrong that's what the problem is. And you can see this all over the joint. This was only um, a couple of days ago. An ABC News article, Pleasure in Our Brain, What Happens When the Pursuit of Pleasure Turns Into Addiction. Like, what is that? That's like, that's humanity that naturally loves things, loving something too much. And that's what the Bible says. That's what the Bible says about what the problem is with humanity is that our loves get disordered and they get too big and we love things we shouldn't love and we don't love things that we should love. All right. Here's the wrap-up. Let me give you a quote from Greg Kokel. 
God is the best explanation for the way things are. The important details of the Christian worldview make good sense of what we actually discover the world to be like. It turns out that the picture of reality the Bible presents fits the world as we discover it and resonates with our deepest intuitions about origin, meaning, morality and destiny. Let me revisit this table for a moment. Have a look at the uh, column, Beliefs About Salvation. Uh, Buddhism says that you've got a suppressed desire. I mean, that legend has it that Buddha got so skinny, he lived on a grain of rice a day, and he got so skinny that you could take your fingers and go like that either side of his torso and touch your fingers. I mean, all the statues of him is fat because he's a rich guy. But it's a suppression of desire. You've got to work hard. If you want to get to Nirvana... You've got to work really, really hard and suppress your desires. It, with the Hindus, what have you got to do? Well, you get reincarnated, so you've got to work really hard. You've got to work hard to have a good life so that you can keep moving through in the process. If you're a Muslim, there's the five pillars. You've got to recite things. There's ritual prayers that have got to be done in the right way. You've got to pay alms. You've got to fast during the month of Ramadan. You've got to head over to Mecca. You've got to do stuff with the Jews. You've got to keep the Mosaic law. You know, the difference between every world religion and Christianity is this. It's the difference between do and done. That's what it is. You don't save yourself. You don't have to go on a program of moral improvement. You know, one of the classic problems with religion is if it's about working hard and being good, a good person, what happens logically, what follows on that logical kind of slippery slope is that you'll get arrogant if you're doing it well. Well, Christianity just doesn't allow for that. It shouldn't allow for that because it's actually we come to God as a wreck and we don't work hard to get saved. We get a salvation and we get made right with God and we get made purified, not because of our efforts, but because of Christ's efforts dying for us on the cross. No other world religion has a God who saves Everyone else has to live up to a standard. Christ lived the standard that we should have met and gives us his standard in his death on the cross. It's him that makes you acceptable. You don't have to work hard to be acceptable anymore.